This week we have another double Parsha, Parshas Chukas and Parshas Balak. Parshas Chukas has 87 verses and three mitzvos, all the mitzvos that relate to the red heifer. And it's a really fascinating Parsha. The first chapter, chapter 19, deals with the red heifer, the red cow, a very unusual process that we'll read about, uh, what to do when someone comes into contact with the dead body, they become impure. There's various restrictions on them, and the only way for them to revert out of their state of impurity is via a potion made out of a red cow processed in a very striking and unusual way. And once that concoction is complete, the ashes mixed with water is sprinkled upon the the, uh, individual, and over the course of seven days, they become pure and they are restored to the state of purity. So that's the first chapter. And then chapter 20 and the, throughout the rest of the Parsha, it deals with a lot of interesting narratives. So first of all, it fast forwards 38 years into the future. There's a jump. You know, we've been dealing with now the Exodus and the aftermath and Sinai and everything that happened till now has all been within a year and change after the Exodus. Chapter 20 is going to begin all the way at the end of the 40 years. And there's essentially a gap of 38 years where the Torah doesn't really tell us what happened. We only learn about where the Jewish people encamped, but we don't have any of the narrative, any of the history about what happened to the Jewish people during those 38 years. And it's going to tell us about the death of Miriam, the older sister of Moses and Aaron, and the death of Aaron as well, and the very intriguing and perplexing episode of the hitting of the rock. There's going to be the episode of the snakes, and also in the Seas Parsha, we're going to read about the first wars that the Jewish people are going to encounter on the eastern side of the Jordan. Of course, the Torah does not end with the conquering of the land of Canaan. They're on the doorstep, and of course, Joshua is going to lead the conquest of Canaan. But Moses is going to be at the helm during the first wars on the eastern side of the Jordan that are going to be told in the Seas Parsha, and the complete narrative is going to be brought in this week's parsha, together with the supplementary information that we find out in the book of Deuteronomy. So let's begin the parsha. The parsha begins, Hashem spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying, This is the decree of the Torah, which Hashem has commanded, saying, Speak the children of Israel, and they shall take to you a completely red cow, which is without blemish, and upon which a yoke has not come. So the mitzvah of the red heifer, the red cow, is classified by the Torah as a decree. And we know that there's different categories of mitzvahs. There's mitzvahs that we would know and fulfill if we used our logic. These are the mitzvahs that are universal mitzvahs. There's some mitzvahs that after they're explained to us, we understand them. And then there's a third category of mitzvahs called decrees. In Hebrew, chok, like this week's parsha is called chukas, which is from that word. And these are mitzvos that are beyond human intellect. No matter how far you try to contort your brain, you cannot possibly understand it. In fact, the Talmud tells us that there was only one person, namely Moses, who was able to understand this mitzvah in its entirety. Solomon, the wisest of all men, he tried to understand it. And even he too, the Talmud tells us in the book of Yoma, page 14, he too yielded and recognized that it is indeed beyond him. And Rashi tells us, right as we begin the parsha, that 
the reason why it's called a chot, the reason why it's called a decree is not because it doesn't have a meaning, but because the Satan, which is the angel that the Almighty orchestrates and appoints to try to cause us to sin, and the non-Jews, the Gentiles, they're the ones who pester the Jewish people, and they say to them, why are you doing such a bizarre mitzvah? What meaning do you have in it? And therefore, it's explained to us, this is a decree, God has an edict, and we have to fulfill it and not question it, even though we don't understand it. So it's important to stress, and people make this mistake, it's a misconception. It doesn't say that there is no reason. It says that because we cannot understand the reason, therefore we have to accept it as a decree and not question it, but there really is something, it's just of godly intellect and not of human intellect. My grandfather pointed out a deep insight. This red heifer, this red cow, is being used to undo the impurity that is foisted upon men at an encounter with death. And since the times of Adam, humanity has been condemned to die. Adam sinned, and as a result of that, all humans are condemned to die. Now, the Talmud tells us something very interesting. It says that Moses buried himself, which, of course, doesn't really make any sense, because, first of all, the Torah tells us that God buried Moses, and what does it even mean to bury yourself? But the deeper insight my grandfather explained is that Moses, he conquered death, meaning that he restored himself to being in the same state that Adam was in before Adam sinned. And therefore, Moses reverted back to the state of humanity, at least personally. He reverted back to the state of humanity before death was a necessary condemnation, so to speak, a reality that is inescapable for all humanity. And therefore, because Moses was above death, he was not at all connected to the concept of death. Therefore, the red heifer, which is only there to undo death, made sense to him because they're opposites. The red heifer and its understanding cannot be understood by someone who's connected to death. But Moses, who was not connected to death, who buried himself, he was someone that understood it. Now, it's important to stress, we do get some insight from the sages and some, from the commentaries about the red heifer. And we'll try to understand it as best as we can and try to dwell on the teachings of the sages. But we also have to acknowledge that there is value to this idea that we're accepting the word of God, even though we don't understand it, it doesn't really fully make sense. So what, what happens over here? We take the red ha- red half of the red cow. It's completely pure. It's completely red. It has no white hairs. It has no black hairs. There's no blemishes upon it. It has no yoke that's upon it. It's given to Elazar the Kohen. So we know, of course, Aaron had a son, Elazar, and he's going to be his successor. And the Kohen has to oversee the processing of the red heifer. It's taken outside the camp. It's slaughtered in the presence of Elazar the Kohen, which is like the vice Kohen Gadol, the vice high priest. They take some of its blood. They sprinkle it towards the tent of meeting. So it's done outside. It's processed outside of the temple grounds, the tabernacle grounds. And then it's sprinkled towards the tabernacle or the temple grounds. And then the cow is burned with everything that's in the cow. And into that fire, there is a concoction, ingredients, cedar wood and hyssop and crimson thread. All that is thrown into the fire. The Talmud tells us that they would actually throw a lot of wood 
into this fire because we're trying to create ashes. The ashes of the red heifer is what's actually used for the processing of the red heifer purification process. And because the red heifer is a exceedingly rare commodity, not to find red heifers or red cows in general, you see a lot of them. But to find a cow that is entirely red or entirely brown or bronze and has no white or black hairs, that is something which is vanishingly rare. And therefore, we have to try to create as much of this ashes as possible to last us as long as as is needed. And therefore, they add more fuel to the fire, more wood to the fire to make more ashes. And once we're done, we, we have a huge pile of ashes. And then a lot of the unusual aspects of this law kick in. The Kohen who oversees it, he becomes impure. And he has to immerse his clothing and immerse himself in water. And the one who burns it also becomes impure. And the one who gathers it also becomes impure. So it's a, it's an unusual thing. It's It's a process to attain purity, but it's also a process that necessitates impurity for some of the people that are overseeing and orchestrating the process of purity for others. And the one who, by the way, sprinkles it on the people who became impure, he also becomes impure. He starts off as pure, becomes impure, and the people that he's sprinkling it upon, they start off impure and they become pure. Again, which is a little bit of a confusing idea. It's a process of purity, but it garners impurity as well. So we have now all these ashes, and they are placed in various places for for safekeeping. And whoever becomes impure by touching a corpse or coming into close contact with a corpse, they become contaminated. They can't walk into the tabernacle. They can't eat sacrifices. If they do, it's terrible. They get cut off from the Jewish people. And in order for them to become pure, they have to take this ashes. The ashes are mixed with water as well. And it's sprinkled upon them after they come in contact with dead people on day three and day seven. And they become pure and they're once again allowed to enter the uh, the tabernacle and eat sacrifices, etc. And the chapter ends, this shall be for them in a total decree. And the one who sprinkles the water of sprinkling shall immerse his clothing. And the one who touches water of sprinkling shall become contaminated until evening. Anything that the contaminated one may touch shall become contaminated, and the person who touches him shall become contaminated until evening. So let's try to understand what is the extent of what we could understand in this whole idea, the red heifer. Let's try to see what the sages tell us. So Rashi tells us a very interesting idea. Rashi tells us that this is somehow connected to the episode of the golden calf. Of course, a calf is a baby cow. So we have a the sin of the Jewish people that really caused a lot of the events that followed to happen. That sin was with a golden calf, a small cow. And now we have the big cow, the red heifer, the mother cow, so to speak, not the calf, the, the mother, which is somehow a remedy for for the sins of the Jewish people. So Rashi tells us a very interesting idea. It tells us that it's a uh, parable for a woman who works for the king, and she's like a like a maidservant, and she has a son who's running around the palace, and the son defecates on the floor of the king. So what does the mother do? The mother comes and she cleans up the excrement of her son. That's the parable. And similarly, over here, says Rashi, we have the baby calf, the baby cow, 
the golden calf, which is the sin, so to speak, that's the excrement of the Jewish people, comes along the red cow, comes along the mother, and the mother cleans it up. So obviously there's a very deep idea that the red heifer and the golden calf are connected, but maybe we could say on a big picture idea that after the Jewish people received the Torah, they essentially were restored to the state of Adam pre-sin. They became like Moses. They had prophecy. They were in a very heightened state of connection with God. And our sages tell us that had they maintained that, had they perpetuated that, had they not sinned in the sin of the golden calf, then they would have conquered death. They would have been on that very high level and would have reverted to pre-sin state of Adam. But of course... After the single calf, they were downgraded to being standard issue humans. Of course, humans with the tremendous experience of the Exodus and Mount Sinai. But they were no longer impervious to death. Their sin had degraded them a level. And therefore, we have the remedy to that. The way to undo that is via the red heifer. And maybe on a, on a deeper level, we could say another idea that the golden calf, it wasn't just some mindless idolatry the way you maybe could read it. The way we understand it is the Jewish people wanted to either isolate one characteristic of God. And in fact, if we study the descriptions in Ezekiel about the prophecy of Ezekiel and the visions of Ezekiel, we find that part of the vision is a cow or a bull, or a calf. And at Sinai, it's possible, at least the way the Ramban explains it, the Jewish people had a vision akin to the one of Ezekiel, and they wanted to create a monument to one aspect of the way God treats us, namely the aspect of judgment, which is personified, which is embodied by the cow, by the heifer, by the calf, and therefore they made the golden calf. It wasn't that they wanted to reject God, it's just they wanted to isolate one characteristic of God to the exclusion of the whole concept of God, which of course has no parts. And because they made that mistake, they have to restore it, they have to undo it, perhaps by something that they don't understand. The idea of the red heifer being something which is beyond us, that's a feature, not a bug, because that connotes complete and total commitment to God. When someone says, I'm doing something and I don't understand it, that shows that they have yielded, they have lowered themselves, submitted themselves to God and accepted him in totality and submitted themselves to him. And therefore, it's almost like the the concept of the golden calf and the concept or the attitude motivating the red heifer are exact opposites. The golden calf, people say, oh, we understand God. And we understand how to embody it, how to personify it, how to create a monument to it. And now we say, okay, let's undo that by saying we don't understand it. And we're not going to give a certain testament to it. And we're going to say it's beyond us. And we're going to do the red heifer, which is something we can't understand. And there's another wrinkle, of course, that the red heifer is the mother of the calf. And that, of course, represents the idea that everything the child has is something that has its roots in the mother. 
Similarly, the characteristic of God is not some isolated entity, but it is part of the grand unity, the grand singularity, the grand one source, which is, of course, God. And, of course, every part of this has deeper insights, but we take the red heifer without blemishes. Of course, the ultimate blemish in our existence is the fact that we do die, and therefore we're symbolizing this idea that death is something which is a flaw, and therefore it's undone by this flawless cow. And the commentaries add, and I'll readily acknowledge that a lot of these things I don't understand, that everything that the red cow represents is all about judgment. It's red. Red's the color of judgment. It's a cow. It's a calf, which represents judgment. It has no white hairs or black hairs, which also represent judgment. And the Ramban speaks about this, the Archaim as well. The Archaim adds that no yoke was placed upon it. A yoke, of course, is about submission, which would reduce judgment. And therefore, there's no yoke upon it. So it has complete judgment. Of course, these are very advanced ideas. And we have to acknowledge we don't really understand it, but that's the basic idea or some of the thoughts that we find in amongst our commentaries about what the red heifer represents. Now, it is interesting that the Torah tells us in verse 3 that Elazar, he oversees the commoner who slaughters the red heifer, but it's Elazar the Kohen, not Aaron the Kohen. At this point in time, Aaron's still alive. So it's an interesting question as to why exactly Elazar, the vice high priest, not Aaron, the high priest himself, why is Elazar overseeing the red heifer? And the Ramban gives a few answers. He says that uh, this is about training Elazar. He's going to be the future high priest, and therefore he's given the role, but of course the high priest could do it himself as well. Alternatively, Aaron was so great, he was so holy, that for him to do a service outside of the temple, outside of the tabernacle, it would be beneath his dignity. Rashi adds an interesting twist. Rashi says... We know Aaron, he participated to some extent in the sin of the golden calf and therefore with the red heifer, which is there to undo the golden calf, it's inappropriate to bring Aaron there based upon the idea that you cannot take a prosecutor and turn him into an advocate. Vis-a-vis the golden calf, Aaron is a force of prosecution and therefore he cannot come and contribute towards the remedy towards the healing because he's someone who is forever associated with the prosecution with the sin of the golden calf. So that's the basic idea. There's another important thing I want to just mention quickly. In verse 14, there's a famous teaching in Talmud. The verse says, this is the teaching regarding a man who will die in a tent. Whenever it says the word tent in Jewish literature, it harkens back to the tent of Jacob it harkens back to the study of Torah. And the Talmud tells us that if someone wants to truly immerse himself in the tent, they have to die over it, so to speak. Says the Talmud, the Torah, the words of Torah are only find continuity with someone who dies over it. And quotes this verse, 1914, this is the Torah, a man who dies in the tent. Meaning that the relationship we have with Torah is that we submit ourselves to God and to Torah, we render ourselves like a clean slate, eager and willing to listen and absorb God's wisdom, and that is the correct attitude to have Torah flourish within us. So that's chapter 19. Chapter 20 begins the narrative portion of the parsha, 
the children of Israel, the whole assembly, arrived in the wilderness of Tzin in the first month, and the people settled in Kadesh. And Miriam died there, and she was buried there, and there was no water for the assembly, and they gathered against Moses and Aaron. So this verse from, from chapter 19 to chapter 20, it fast-forwards 38 years towards the end of the 40-year duration of the Jewish people's time in the wilderness. Now, what happens in between is something we don't know. And the Rabbeinu Bachai he tells us that the episodes of the Torah and the prophecies of the Torah only happen in the beginning, the first year, and in the last year. And the commentaries explain that there was a period in the middle where God, so to speak, hid his face. And that probably relates to the episodes we read previously in the book of Numbers, the sin of the spies, the sin of the scouts. And God said, okay, you're all going to die. We're going to filter and recycle you through you, so to speak. And a new generation is going to enter. That generation that was rejected by God, so to speak, it seems like the prophecies that we find in the Torah were not conveyed in their presence once the sin of the spies of the scouts happened and the verdict was handed down that these people are going to be killed or they're going to die before the entrance into the land of Canaan commences. So we're now 38 years later and Miriam, the sister of Moses, dies and right away there is no water for the assembly. And everyone, of course, is freaking out because there's no water and you're in the middle of a wilderness, in the middle of a desert. So first of all, there's an interesting Rashi here. Rashi tells us that there's a juxtaposition between the episode of the red heifer and the death of Miriam. Why are they put next to each other? This teaches us, says Rashi, that just as sacrifices atone, so too the death of the righteous provides atonement for the people of Israel. A very interesting idea that just as the red heifer, of course, provides purification and sacrifices in general provide atonement, similarly, the death of the righteous provides atonement. Now, I saw an interesting comment here by the Kliyakar, one of the commentaries we find on the Torah. A very advanced idea. He tells us that there's four places in the Torah where this idea is being conveyed, that there's a juxtaposition between two episodes to teach us this kind of idea. For example, it tells us in the book of Leviticus where the sons of Aaron died. Right afterwards, read about the Yom Kippur services. And that tells us what's the juxtaposition because when the righteous die, it's like Yom Kippur. It provides atonement. That's the first time. And then we have over here. And then we have later on, the story of the death of Aaron, and that's juxtaposed to the garments of the high priest, and that tells you that the garments of the high priest provides atonement. And finally, we have the death of Aaron when it's retold in the book of Deuteronomy. That is juxtaposed to the breaking of the tablets to tell you that the death of the righteous is equivalent to the breaking of the tablets. So he, he, he points out something very interesting. There's four places in the Torah where sages tell us what the death of the righteous means. What's the impact? And then he tells us a very deep and powerful idea. He says each one of these four episodes, each one of them corresponds to one of the four benefits that a righteous person, that a tzaddik, 
benefits their generation. So, for example, number one, here we have the, do- the, the story of the death of Miriam. And then right away, what happens? There's no water. We find out that the reason why there's no water is because the water that was provided to them for 40 years was provided to them via the merit of Miriam. So this is one element of the benefits that the righteous provide to their generation, that they provide nourishment. And he quotes the sages in the Talmud. The Talmud says that when there's a righteous person, the nourishment that is given to the whole world is done in their merit. That's the first idea. The second idea is that a righteous person, a Torah scholar, a Torah sage, teaches the nation Torah. And therefore, when they die, it's like the breaking of the tablets because the connection to Torah is weakened via the death of the righteous. And therefore, when Aaron died, it's juxtaposed to the destruction of the first of tablets. The third concept, the third benefit that the righteous give us to, uh, to our, to the generation, to the nation is equivalent to garments. Just as you have a garment, it provides warmth, it provides comfort, it provides shelter. Similarly, when the righteous are present and when the righteous are alive in a generation, they provide protection, they provide comfort for the nation. And we'll read a little bit later on in this week's parasha. When Aaron died, the clouds that had enveloped the nation for the duration of the 40 years, they ceased and they stopped. And that's similar to the idea of garments, that they were a protective sheath for the nation. That's another element of the benefits that are given to us by the, by the righteous. And finally, the death of the righteous provides atonement because a righteous person provides atonement for the generation. And therefore, just like Yom Kippur provides atonement, so too the righteous provides atonement to the generation when they pass. And that is another benefit that is given to us by the righteous. Very interesting idea that the Kliyakar here tells us that there's four times in the Torah where this concept is revealed and each one of them is revealing a different component, different aspect of the benefits that a righteous person, that a tzaddik, gives us as the nation when they are alive and in their passing. So Miriam dies and she's buried there and right away there is no water for the assembly. There's an amazing Rashi over here. Rashi tells us that from here we learn, from this these two verses, verse 1 and verse 2, Miriam died and there is no water, we find out that the well that had been following the nation for 40 years was done in the merit of Miriam. Now the Talmud, in the book of, of Tainus, tells us that eventually, and we'll read about the story a little bit later on, it's brought back, the water and the well is restored by Moses and by Aaron. They're going to pray, of course. They're going to hit the rock first, and that's going to cause a problem. It's going to be a sin. But ultimately, the water came back because of the two brothers of Miriam. But initially, the well that had followed the Jewish people was the byproduct of the merits of Miriam. But if you read Rashi very critically, you find out a deep insight. Here, Rashi is telling us that because when Miriam died, the water stopped, only then did everyone realize that the water had come because of Miriam. Which means that for the course of 40 years, 
A nation of millions of people are drinking water every single day. Billions and billions, maybe even trillions of glasses of water that they're drinking from this miraculous well that has been following them. And no one knew that this was all in the merit of Miriam. No one knew. And then when she dies, only then does it become clear to them that it happened because of her. And the commentaries add that when she died, there wasn't the proper eulogizing, there wasn't the proper mourning, and that's why they lost it. Had they realized who she was, they could have maintained her merit. Because the nation didn't realize who she was and what she was doing for them, that's the reason why they lost it. So everyone's thirsty, and they come to to Moses and Aaron, there's no water, and please provide us water. But of course, they complained a little bit. You took us out into the wilderness. We're all going to die, us and our animals. Why did you bring us up from Egypt to bring us to this evil, evil place? There's no water. And Moses and Aaron, they go into prayer and into prophecy with God. And God tells Moses, take the staff, which is the staff that we read about in last week's parsha, the staff of Aaron that had sprouted almonds, and gather together the assembly you and Aaron, and speak to the rock before the eyes of the nation, and it shall give its water. You'll be able to restore the water-spewing rock that we've had till now if you talked it in front of the entire assembly. You shall bring forth for them water from the rock and give drink to the assembly and to their animals. So what happens? So Moses takes the staff, and they gather the nation. And Moses speaks to the nation, Listen now, O rebels. Shall we bring forth water for you from this rock? Is it possible? So Moses takes his arm and strikes the rock with his staff twice. And abundant water came forth, and the assembly and their animals drank. So if you just read that, simply you're like, this is an amazing miracle. Moses and Aaron, they convened the entire nation. They hit the rock and water spews forth, and there's enough water for the whole nation and for their animals. But right away we read that this was a major sin. They're punished for it. Hashem said to Moses and Aaron, because you don't believe in me to sanctify me in the eyes of the children of Israel, therefore you will not bring this congregation to the land that I have given them. They are the waters of strife where the children of Israel contended with Hashem, and he was sanctified through them. So a very interesting idea here, and maybe one of the most puzzling episodes in the Torah. Moses and Aaron can be the whole nation. They do a tremendous miracle by hitting a rock and the rock emits water. And right away God says, okay, this was a sin. And this is not just any kind of sin. This is a sin that demonstrates that you don't believe in me. And by the way, if Moses and Aaron don't believe in God, who does believe in God? And as a result of that, neither of you are going to enter the land of Israel. You're going to die on the eastern bank of the Jordan and someone else will lead the nation into the land. And of course, all the commentaries try to figure out what exactly did Moses and Aaron do wrong? It seems like if there was a sanctification of God in the Torah, this is it. Hitting a rock and the rock emits water, enough water for millions of people, that's a great miracle. But God says, no, no, you didn't sanctify me. You left the miracle on the table and therefore you're going to be punished. It's a very interesting and problematic episode and all the commentaries 
voluminous commentaries on this, trying to understand what happened. Because Rashi tells us that the sin is that instead of speaking to the rock, they hit the rock. And the Ramban asks a series, a very long Ramban here has an essay on, on this, and he brings Rashi, he doesn't like Rashi's interpretation, he brings the Rambam's interpretation, he doesn't like that one either. And he says, Rashi, I don't, I don't get it. If they were not supposed to hit the rock, why did God tell them to go take the staff and speak to the rock? Why would you take the staff if you're only supposed to talk to the rock? The staff, the purpose of the staff is, is to be used in this ceremony. Moreover, we know in the book of Exodus, Moses well, was told to take the staff and hit the rock. So what's wrong with hitting the rock this time? Moreover, the Ramban adds that, yes, it's a miracle if I talk to a rock and the rock emits water, but if I hit it, it's no less of a miracle if it emits water. So what exactly is being diminished here by hitting the rock as opposed to speaking to it? And he brings the Rambam. The Rambam says something very interesting. He says that Moses called the nation, O rebels. Listen now, O rebels. Moses is labeling the nation as a nation of rebels. And he's displaying a little bit of anger. And as a result of that, the people thought that, hey, Moses is angry at us. You know who else must be angry at us? God must be angry at us. Because if Moses is displaying anger towards us, and he's nothing more but than a funnel of God, then it must be that God's angry at us too. But of course, God was not angry at them. And therefore, the sin of Moses is that he caused the nation to make a mistake, to err in their interpretation, in the understanding of what God, of the characteristics, so to speak, of, of God was at that time. And that's a very deep idea that Moses, every one of his actions, every one of his words was a lesson to the nation. He wasn't displaying his own feelings. He was displaying what God was, so to speak, feeling at that time. And if Moses is angry and God's not angry, that is a sin that shows that there is a misalignment. There's an asymmetry between Moses and God. Moses does not have faith in God, so to speak. Of course, this is only for Moses. And at his level, this is a sin for Moses. For us, it probably wouldn't be a sin. I would say quite the contrary. It'd probably be a great miracle in mitzvah if we could do this. But for Moses, the second there's a, there's a misalignment between him and God, that's a sin for him. And for him, on his level, it's considered as if he doesn't have faith in God, he didn't sanctify God, and therefore he's not going to bring the Jewish people into the land of, of Israel. And of course, we have to acknowledge that this is the very basic understanding, and there is a tremendous amount of literature on this subject, and there's many other angles of this story, but that's the story in its basic form. Moses hits the rock instead of speaking to it, and whatever exactly the, the nature of the sin is, is of course a great debate. But as a result of this, and only this, Moses and Aaron are not going to be allowed to enter the land of Canaan, the land of Israel. And Moses, of course, is going to spend a tremendous amount of time trying to undo that, trying to repent for it, so to speak. But ultimately, this is going to stand, and Moses is going to pass on the eastern side of the Jordan, outside of Israel. Now, there is an amazing Rashi here in verse 13. The verse says, they are the waters of strife. 
these waters, the waters of the rock, are the waters of strife. So Rashi tells us, invoking Pharaoh in Exodus, when Pharaoh, when he was worried about the Jewish people having a savior, his forecasters, his necromancers, his stargazers, his astrologers told him, we see that the savior of the Jewish people is going to be born, and he is going to be stricken with water. Therefore, throw all the Jewish babies into the water. Rashi tells us, when in the verse here tells us that they are the waters of strife, it's referencing that same vision that the stargazers of Pharaoh had. Indeed, Pharaoh was correct that the lead of the Jewish people, say the Jewish people, is going to be stricken by water, but it's not going to be because of the waters that are going to kill them, throwing the babies into the, into the water. But this episode of the waters, this was Moses' sin, and this was the strife, so to speak, the war, the war, strife, the waters of strife that they saw. They, of course, misinterpreted it, but this is a reference to that, a very interesting idea. And the episode ends by telling us that God was sanctified through them. And again, Rashi tells us, and this is an idea that we saw earlier, that when God punishes the righteous, that is a sanctification of God because everyone who is not righteous says, oh my goodness, if God is so serious with the righteous and he punishes them for what we consider the most minor of sins, what does that portend to us? And the lesson that the nation takes when they see God punishing the righteous is a lesson that provides sanctification for God because they all take the lesson home and therefore the punishment of the righteous is indeed something which God is sanctified through. And I would just add, and this is of course dicey territory, but the people who ask the question, where was God in the Holocaust? Of course, it's a very difficult question to grapple with, but the question of why the righteous died in the Holocaust is a different angle. And here we see a little bit of a Jewish perspective of that, that when the righteous die or the righteous are punished and comparatively less righteous people are not punished or not punished by the same severity, here's a little bit of a wrinkle of understanding that this provides more of a lesson, more of a sanctification than when the wicked or the less righteous are punished. And then verse 14, we begin reading about the encounters that the Jewish people had with the various nations that are blockading their entrance to the land. Of course, the eastern border of the land of Israel is the Jordan River. And you have the west bank of the river, which is in the land of Canaan, the land of Israel proper. And then you have the eastern bank, which at that time was occupied by all kinds of nations. And the Jewish people want to navigate and negotiate passage to Canaan, and they have to get through some of those nations. So they begin, and this is the first encounter with a foreign adversary in the Parsha, they begin with Edom, with the nation of Edom. So Moses sent emissaries from Kadesh to the king of Edom, and he reaches out to the nation of Edom. Edom, of course, is from the family of Esau of Esau. And they reach out and they send the, they send the message as follows. So said your brother Israel. So right away you were invoking the brotherhood. Because of course the nation, their descendants of Jacob, the brother of Esau. 
you know all the hardships that have befallen us, and he gives us the whole history. Our forefathers descended to Egypt, and they dwelt in Egypt for many years, and the Egyptians did evil to us and our forefathers. We cried out to Hashem, he heard our voice, he sent an emissary to us out of the land of Egypt, and now we're in Kadesh, the city at the edge of your border. Let us pass through your land. We shall not pass through field or vineyard. We shall not drink well water. On the king's road we shall travel. We are not going to veer right or left until we pass through your border. So they make a request for passage through the land of Edom. And Edom responds, Edom said to him, You shall not pass through me, lest I come against you with the sword. And the people persist, the nation of Israel persists, and they say to them, Okay, maybe we have a different arrangement. We should go through on the highway. If we drink water, me or my flock will pay the price. We're not going to happen to you, we're just gonna, we're just gonna walk through on foot. And again, the response is unambiguous. You shall not pass through. And then Edom went out against them with a massive throng and a strong hand, and they refused passage, and the nation of Israel turned away from them. So this is the first encounter with, with an enemy, the enemy of Edom. So there's a very interesting Rashi here explaining the subtext of this dialogue, of this negotiation. The people of Israel begin, we are your brothers. What is the reason why the brotherhood is being invoked here? Rashi tells us, according from the Midrash, that we're brothers, and after all, our common ancestor, Abraham, was promised that you should surely know that your children will be foreigners in a foreign land. There was a curse that was upon our collective family, both of us. The nation of Israel, the nation of the Jewish people, the children of Israel, and the children of Edom, both of them had this debt to pay from the time of Abraham. And who paid that debt? We paid that debt. And therefore, because we paid that debt, therefore we earn the right to the land of Israel. We're the ones who paid the debt, and therefore you should not have any problems any qualms with our entrance into the land of Canaan, because after all, the people who pay the debt, they're the ones who should reap the rewards. We pay the debt we suffered at the hands of Pharaoh and the Egyptians, and therefore we have earned our claim to the land of Israel, and therefore let us go through. And the response of Edom is interesting, because Rashi again explains that the Jewish people are invoking their prayer And that, of course, is the characteristics of Jacob. The voice is the voice of Jacob. And the response of Edom is that the sword is the power of Esav. Why? You approach as Jacob. You approach with prayer. I'm going to approach as Esav, as Esau. I'm going to approach you with the sword. And ultimately, they don't let them pass. They veered away. And the Rabban here tells us that the reason why they did not respond militarily to the Edomites, to Esav, is based upon divine mandate. We read this, again, like we mentioned earlier, the narrative of the conquest of the eastern bank of the Jordan is retold in the beginning of the book of Deuteronomy, and we find out some more information that completes the narrative for us. And there we find out that God told Moses to not start up with the Edomites They're the ones who rightfully have the land of Seir, and therefore the reason why they veered away from them is not because they were scared of a fight, but it was based upon a divine instruction that they're not allowed to wage war with Edom. And then they journey 
out of the vicinity of Edom, and they arrive at Mount Hor, which is Har Hahar in in Hebrew. And the word Har means mountain, and Har Hahar means mountain upon mountain. So Rashi tells us this looks like a like a like a fruit. If you would have an apple on top of an apple, a mountain on top of a mountain, you would have Har Hahar, Mount Har, which is the mountain upon which Aaron is going to be buried. And this is on the border of the land of Edom. And Moses is instructed by God, Aaron's going to die. He's not going to enter the land because of the waters of strife. Again, exclusively because of that sin. Take Aaron and Eliezer, his son, bring them on top of the mountain. Take off Aaron's special garments that are reserved for the high priest and dress his son Eliezer, who is dressed with the four garments of a regular priest, and upgrade him to be the replacement, to be the successor of his father as the high priest, and Aaron is going to die. So Moses did as Shem commanded. They ascended Mount Hor before the eyes of the entire assembly. Moses stripped Aaron's garments from him and dressed Elazar, his son, in them. The commentaries quote the Midrash and the Talmud that tells us this was miraculous, that uh, you couldn't really undo this without taking off all the garments, but the four garments that are universal amongst the Kohanim remained on Aaron in a miraculous fashion. And Aaron died there on the top of the mountain, and Moses and Elazar descended from the mountain. When the entire assembly saw that Aaron had perished, they wept for Aaron for 30 days, the entire house of Israel. There's a very interesting Rashi here that tells us the process of Aaron's passing. It tells us that they entered into a cave and they saw in the cave a bed spread out and a candle lit and Aaron was told by Moses, go on top of the bed and extend your hands and open your mouth, close your eyes and that's how he died. And the way it's described in the Talmud, he died with the, the death called kiss. Almost as if the mouth which is the conduit through which the soul came through into us, that's just extracted seamlessly from the mouth via, so to speak, a kiss, which is, of course, on a deeper level, telling us that Aaron's soul was so pure, it did not need to navigate any sort of resistance. It was put in seamlessly. It was taken out as equally seamlessly to indicate that he was entirely righteous. And people who are entirely righteous, they die with this level of death. And Rashi tells us the second Moses saw this, he too craved that kind of death. And just as a sidebar here, in Judaism we say that the way someone dies, the nature of the death of a person is indicative, is reflective on the kind of life that they lived. And the Talmud tells us in the book of Brachos, page 8, that there's 903 different types of death because there's 903 different levels that a person can reach at. And the highest level, the most righteous death, is the death of, of the kiss, which is a death in which the soul is pulled out without any resistance. There's no blemishes to that soul, and therefore it can be taken out very easily and very seamlessly, says the Talmud, like pulling out a hair out of a glass of milk. When the nation sees that Aaron had died, they're in total shock and total disbelief. And Rashi tells us the dialogue that happened. Where's Aaron? They ask Moses. And Moses says, well, he died. 
How is it possible? Last week's parasha, we read how Aaron had stymied, had stifled the angel of death. He stopped the plague. How is it possible the angel of death had control over him? And right away, Moses requested mercy and the angels showed a vision to the nation of Aaron placed upon a bier, placed upon a bed, and they believed him. They couldn't believe him that Aaron would die. Aaron, in their, in, in their minds, was impervious to death. But once they saw that, they believed him. And as a result of the passing of Aaron, the nation, the whole nation cries for 30 days. Rashi tells us, why is it the whole nation? Because Aaron was someone who relentlessly pursued peace and he would try to infuse peace and love between litigants, between a husband and wife, and consequently everyone felt a kinship, a connection to Aaron, and therefore everyone cried for 30 days because everyone recognized the tremendous loss that they had with the passing of Aaron. And right away we read chapter 21 that Amalek masquerading as a regular Canaanite nation they discover the whereabouts of the people of Israel and they attack and they took a captive from the nation of Israel. And here's the second juxtaposition of a death of, of a righteous one, the death of Aaron, to the attack of the Canaanites. And Rashi tells us that when Aaron died, the clouds of glory that had camouflaged the nation disappeared and therefore the nation is suddenly exposed to the enemy, and the enemy attacks, which means that the nation is, is traveling within this invisible bubble, this enveloping cloud, and therefore they could go wherever they want undetected. But now once Aaron dies, the cloud goes away, and therefore their whereabouts are known to the enemy. Now Amalek is acting quite sinisterly because they are attacking as Canaanites. You read the verse, the verse says, the Canaanite king of Arad, they heard about the Jewish people and they attack. But we find out from Rashi, these are not regular Canaanites. These are specifically the southern dwelling Canaanites, which is Amalek. And Rashi tells us why did they masquerade as Canaanites? Because they spoke the land of Canaan and they camouflaged themselves because they wanted the Jewish people to pray for a salvation from the Canaanites and therefore to say an incorrect prayer, because it's not the Canaanites, it's really the Amalekites, and therefore the prayer would be inefficacious, and therefore they would be able to win. Very deep insight. If you're praying to, to survive the encounter with the enemy, and you say the wrong name of the enemy, you say Canaanites instead of Amalekites, your prayer might not be effective. And therefore we see indeed there was a captive. And, of course, there's, there's, a, there's a variety of lessons over here, but one of them is with respect to prayer. Prayer has to be precise, almost like if you put in a website address and you spell it incorrectly, it doesn't matter how, how many times you hit the enter button, it's not going to work. Similarly, prayer, you're, you're asking God for something specific, and if you say the wrong thing, even though, of course, God knows what you really want, but prayer is such a powerful tool, and it has to be marshaled correctly, and therefore, if you say it inaccurately, it's not going to work. There's a story with Robert Keith Ager, one of the great sages of the late 18th and early 19th century. There was a prayer that he was saying, and someone told him, pray for this person, for this and this name. And he's like, it's not, this is the wrong name, because I feel resistance to the prayer. And indeed, it turned out that it was the wrong name. 
And that's why the prayer was not immediately efficacious. So they have an encounter with Amalek. And indeed, Amalek is successful in taking a captive. Rashi tells us this is only one maidservant. And this, I think, reveals an insight that for us, any degree of casualties of war is too much to bear. And we see this amongst other nations, you know, when there is an exchange, a prisoner exchange, there's one Israeli soldier and there's, you know, 5,000 terrorists. And the asymmetry is reflected over here because the Jewish nation, no loss is tolerable. And here we see a focus that we lost and who would we lose? We lost one person and who was that? It was it was a maidservant. You would think that that would not even register. But here we see an inside the Jewish people, when we have war, any degree of casualty is something that we cannot bear. And the people pray to God and they make a vow. If you deliver the people into my hand, I will consecrate their cities, meaning I will dedicate the spoils of war to God. God heard their voice. And he delivered the Canaanites, and it, indeed they kept their promise. They consecrated them and their cities, and they named the place that they conquered. They named it Charma. After that war, the war, war with Amalek, they retreated a little bit, and they went back in the direction where they came from to circle around the land of Edom. But the people got really frustrated with this detour, and they started complaining why are you bringing us up to the land of Egypt? We're going to die in the wilderness. There's no food. There's no water. We're disgusted with the manna, with this insubstantial food. And God sent the fiery serpents, the venomous serpents, to go kill the people because they were complaining. And a large multitude of Israel died. They started retreating. They started going in a circuitous route. And the people are so frustrated. We're finally on the doorstep of Canaan. And now we're going back around. They start complaining. And God responds with a fitting punishment by sending after them the venomous snakes. Rashi tells us that the snake, the, the primordial snake of Genesis, spoke evil, and therefore these people speak evil, and therefore it's appropriate for them to be punished with snakes. And in addition, Rashi tells us the second reason why God sends snakes is because a snake, everything tastes like dust. And here the Jewish people, they show ingratitude because they have the manna which tastes like anything that you want it to taste like and therefore it's appropriate when you complain about the manna it's appropriate that you're attacked with snakes because the manna is the exact opposite of any snake food the manna tastes like anything and the snake food tastes all the same so the serpents are attacking the Jewish people they complain to Moses Moses prays to God and God says to them okay I'll give you a solution make a pole upon the pole put a fiery serpent Anyone who is bitten by the serpent will look at it and live. So Moses made, makes a serpent of copper, placed it upon a pole, and indeed, when a serpent bit any person, they would stare at the copper serpent and they would live. So this is, of course, a miracle. And Rashi quotes the teaching from the Talmud in the book of Rosh Hashanah. What does it mean to look at this staff, this fiery serpent staff? What does it mean? Of course, it's not to tell you that the snake kills, nor does the snake give life. But when you look up to heaven and you pray, then God will save you. And the Ramban adds that this is to remind us that not only does God give life, but God also kills. Yes, the remedy of the snake bite comes from God, but certainly the snake bite itself also comes from God. And then we read about 
another encounter, this time with the Amorites, and something really miraculous happens. And Rashi fills in the details that they were waiting in ambush in caves between two mountains. And their plan was when the people pass beneath them, beneath in the valley between these two mountains, they're going to pummel them with all kinds of weaponry and they're going to kill them in, uh, in, in this way. And God made a miracle that the two mountains temporarily clasped together, crushing them to death. And we got a very vivid description here in Rashi that their blood and their guts and their limbs were all crushed by these two mountains that clasped together and it all fell down into the, into the valley. And as a result of that, we read this song of the Book of the Wars of Hashem, which is the song based upon the miracle that happened. And Rashi tells us that the, the well that was now following them from the rock gathered up all the blood and all the limbs of, of the dead Amorites that had laid ambush for the people. And when the people saw that, they started singing. And this is one of the songs of the Torah, a song of uh, tremendous thanks to God for this wonderful miracle. Now, there's an interesting question Rashi tells us here in, in the end of his commentary on this, on this song. Why does the song not mention neither God nor Moses? And he tells us a very interesting idea because Moses, after all, he was somewhat culpable with the sin of hitting the rock and therefore this well, this spring is somehow associated negatively with Moses and therefore it's inappropriate for to have his name labeled on this song and consequently it's inappropriate to have God as well because God said, so to speak, if you don't include Moses, don't include me. And we also find out from Rashi, a very interesting idea, that the well of Miriam eventually embedded itself in the Sea of the Galilee and my grandfather used to tell the story that when Rab Chaim Vital was a student of the Arizal, he was not understanding the Torah conveyed to him by the Arizal. He took him into a, a boat, into a canoe in the Sea of Galilee in northern Israel, and he gave him to drink from a specific spot in the Sea of Galilee. And that was from the waters of the well of Miriam. And once he drank that, the wellsprings of wisdom were open for him. My grandfather also added that when he went to Tiberias, he went to Tveria, he really wanted a drink from that water, but no one knew exactly where it was. And my father told me that he remembers going to Tiberias with his father, with my grandfather, and him asking around trying to find where that water was. Really interesting. So that was a third encounter with the Amorite contingency that was trying to kill the Jewish people in ambush. And then we read about the fourth encounter, this time with Sichon, the king of the Amorites, Again, there is a request for passage, and again, there is a negative response, and Sichon, instead of yielding, he engages in war, and again, Israel smote him with the edge of the sword to possession of his land, his whole land, and they settled it. This was a very powerful nation. This was a nation that stood at the vanguard of the land of Canaan. It was a mighty nation. It was a nation that was inconquerable, and there was a miraculous defeat of this mighty enemy. Despite the fact that the Jewish people reached out with peace overtures, they were rejected, and indeed the defeat was very miraculous. And finally, we read about the fifth encounter with Og, the king of Bashan. Again, they also battle with the Jewish people, and Moses is told by God, don't fear them, I'm going to deliver them into your hands like I delivered the uh, Sichon, the king of the Amorites, 
And indeed, they smote him, his sons, and all his people until there was no survivor left among them, and they took possession of his land. So these twin powers that were on the edges of Lam Canaan, Og, the king of Bashan, and Sichon, the king of the Amorites, they were both conquered and their lands were acquired by the people of Israel. And indeed, some of the people, we'll read about this a little bit later on in the book of Numbers, some of the tribes decided to permanently dwell on the eastern side of the Jordan in the lands conquered from the Amorites and from the Bashanites. And the next parsha is going to deal with another kingdom, the kingdom of Moab. They see what the Jewish people did to the kingdoms of Bashan and of the Amorites, and they get terrified, and they resort to a very unconventional weapon to try to stymie and stifle the Jewish people, and that is trying to hire, trying to commission Bilam, the Gentile prophet, to curse them. Thus concludes the Parsha, the fifth and final encounter of the Parsha with the enemies. They destroy the king of Bashan. Og, the king of Bashan is destroyed. There's a total victory, and the children of Israel journey and camp on the plains of Moab, on the banks of the Jordan, opposite Jericho. They are ready to enter, and uh, the rest of the Torah, essentially, is going to be the Jewish people at this location, in the plains of Moab, on the banks of the Jordan River. Parsha's Balak has 104 verses. It doesn't have any mitzvos, and the entirety of the Parsha is a narrative, namely the narrative of very unusual, very interesting characters that are trying to curse the Jewish people. Now, it's very interesting that with the exception of the final nine verses, the entire Parsha is presented from the vantage point, from the perspective of the enemies of the Jewish people. And I don't think, with the exception maybe of a few verses at the beginning of Exodus, I don't think that we have a parallel to this where the perspective of the Torah, of the narrative, is not from the Jewish people, but instead from the perspective of their enemies. So it's very unusual that we have this whole story, a whole parsha, based upon following the story of Bilaam and Balak as they're scheming to try to curse and to try to destroy the Jewish people. Now, just as a way of introduction, the central character of the Parsha is Bilaam or Balaam, and he's a very unusual character in Jewish literature. So, for example, the Talmud in the book of Sanhedrin tells us that all Jewish people have a portion in Olam have a portion in the afterlife in the world to come. And then it lists several exceptions. There are people who, by dint of their character, their behavior, their their deeds, their sins, they lose their portion, but they forfeit their portion in the afterlife. So it lists people, people who don't believe in the Torah, people who don't believe in, in the afterlife itself, people who are heretics. And then it lists individuals that also have lost their portion. And it lists uh, several famous sinners amongst the Jewish people. And it also lists Bilaam. Now, it's a little bit unusual because the structure of that Mishnah, of that teaching of the Talmud, is that all Jews have a portion of Olaba, have a portion of the world to come. And these are the Jews that are the exceptions to the rule that they lose their portion in Olamaba. Now, Bilaam, of course, he's the prophet from the non-Jews. And therefore, you would never think from the beginning of the Mishnah that he would have a portion in the world to come. And therefore, it's a little bit odd that we're told that he loses his portion. Moreover, there is a uh, an intimate connection between Bilaam, the greatest of the prophets of the non-Jews, and Abraham, 
of course, the founder, the patriarch of our nation. The Mishnah tells us in the end of Perkyavos, whoever has these three characteristics is a student of Abraham, and whoever has these three other characteristics is a student of Bilam, the wicked one. If you have a good eye, if you have a humble spirit, if you're content, you have a limited appetite for physical things, then you're a student of Abraham. Whereas if you have an evil eye, a haughty spirit, a rapacious appetite, then you are a student of Bilam the wicked. It's almost as if we're told there's three hallmarks of the students of Abraham, and the opposite of those three are the characteristics of the students of Bilam. And the commentaries note that Bilam, in effect, these three characteristics, they include all the negative character that exists. And the three positive characteristics found in Abraham include all the positive characteristics that exist. So I think from the unusual treatment that we're getting of Bilam in this Parsha and throughout Jewish literature, it seems like there's an emphasis to study this individual character almost as if he is the perfect example of the worst kind of person you could be, and therefore we're studying his story and we're given an entire parsha from his perspective because we need to study how exactly to not behave. We have to dwell a little bit on the character that's the exact opposite of Abraham. We have to learn what are the characteristics that would make a person forfeit their portion in Olamaba, the portion in the afterlife. So the parsha begins, Balak, the son of Tzipor, saw all that Israel had done to the Amorites. In the end of last week's parsha, we had the beginning of the battles the Jewish people had on the eastern bank of the Jordan River, and they destroyed the Amorites. And now Balak, who is the king of Moab, one of the other nations that resides on the eastern bank of the Jordan, now they're worried. Moab became very frightened of the people because it was numerous. Commentaries note that Sihon and Od, the two mighty kings that were destroyed last year's parsha, were very, very strong. And now we have Moab, who is comparatively smaller and weaker, and they are very nervous because if the mighty empires were decimated by the Jews, certainly the more smaller and weaker ones are increasingly vulnerable. And therefore, they resorted, as we'll see in the Parsha, to unconventional warfare. And Moab was disgusted in the face of the children of Israel. It is interesting that this is the second time in the Torah that we see the people are disgusted by the Jews. It wasn't just over here. It was also when the Egyptians, when they hatched their plan to enslave the Jewish people, it says the same exact word. They were disgusted. And I think this really describes maybe the sentiment that undergirds anti-Semitism. Rashi tells us here, what does it mean they were disgusted? It means they lost their meaning in life. They were so agitated. They had such an irrational loathing, abhorring of the Jewish people that they couldn't live with themselves. They couldn't bear existing so long as the Jewish people were alive. And again, it seems like from last week's parsha that the Jews always reach out with overtures of peace. There's an easy solution to the, the dilemma. You approach the Jewish people and you say, okay, I'm interested in coming to some sort of terms, some sort of agreement. Let's have a an agreement that we could both live by and let's have peace. That That's the easy solution. But here we see that they're motivated by this irrational, unusual loathing. They couldn't live. They couldn't exist. They lost their meaning in life. 
so long as the Jewish people were around. So what did they do? Moab said to the elders of Midian, now the congregation, i.e. the Jewish people, will lick up our entire surroundings as an ox licks up the greening of the field, and Balak, the son of Tipor, was king of Moab at that time. And Rashi tells us that Moab and Midian were long-time enemies, but they united against the common enemy, even though they themselves hated each other. But because they both hated the Jews as well, they found a way to create a pact. Talmud tells us this is akin to two dogs that were fighting with each other. And one of them is attacked by a wolf. So what happens? The other dog comes to his aid. Because otherwise, if I don't help the dog now, even though I hate him, but the wolf will eat him and then he'll eat me next. Similarly here, Moab and Midian, these two enemies, because they have a common enemy, the Jewish people, they are uniting. Now, it's interesting, we find that Balak was the king of Moab at that time. Rashi tells us that really he was only recently appointed. He was like a wartime president. He was the interim president. It was only because they saw the Jewish people trouncing Sihon and Og, they appointed someone like Balak, someone who really was not previously in the monarchy. They appointed him. He was a necromancer, a sorcerer, even greater than Bilam. And therefore, they appointed him to be a very unusual figurehead because of the pressing needs of the arrival of the Jews. Now, it's interesting. The Midrash tells us that Balak was either the son or the grandson of Jethro, Moses' father-in-law. And it makes him, in effect, the brother-in-law or the nephew of Moses. It's an interesting family dynamics here. So we have a problem. The Jewish people are coming and Moab is reaching out to the elders of Midian. Why is Moab reaching out to the elders of Midian, not to the king of Midian, not to the ministers of Midian? Why to the elders of Midian? So the Ramban quotes a Midrash that tells us something very fascinating. We know Moses, as a young child, had to escape from Egypt and eventually ends up in the land of Midian, this very same land. And of course, he marries the daughter of Jethro, Sipora, and he spends a lot of time there until he's 80 when he goes back to Egypt to save the Jewish people. And therefore, the Midrash tells us that the reason why they went to the elders of Midian is because they wanted to do some field research. They realized that the leader of the Jewish people was raised in Midian, and therefore it is appropriate for us to send messengers to the elders of Midian, not to the kings, not to the nation, because the elders of Midian would know the backstory, the history of Moses, his vulnerabilities, his powers, and therefore we'll find out how to thwart the Jews and Moses. And Rashi tells us that they discovered that the power of the nation resides in its words, and therefore, we will attack them with words. As Jewish people, our power lies in the voice, is the voice of Jacob. It's in our words, in the words of prayer, in the words of Torah. And therefore, the way to undo that, the way to attack that, the kryptonite, so to speak, of the Jewish people, is words. And therefore, they hired Bilam, the sorcerer, to use words to curse the Jewish people. So he sent messengers to Balaam, the son of Baor, to Pesor, which is where he was which is by the river, and we're going to summon Bilam to go 
curse the Jewish people. And, and the message was as follows. Behold, a people has come out of Egypt. Behold, it has covered the surface of the earth. It sits opposite me. The commentaries note that it sits opposite me that Balak and the Moabites did not know exactly where they were. And like we spoke about last week, the Jewish people were enveloped with the clouds that made them invisible so that they knew that the enemy was there. They didn't know exactly where it was. So now, please come and curse this people for me, for it is too powerful for me. Perhaps I will be able to strike it and drive it from the land, for I know that whomever you bless is blessed and and whomever you curse is accursed. So there's a few interesting things over here. Rashi tells us right away at the very beginning an interesting idea. Bilaam is a prophet who has apparently the ability to curse and to bless. And the question that Rashi asks is, why does someone like Bilaam, and we'll learn more about him, someone who is crowned with all the terrible characteristics that exist in the world, why is someone like that given prophecy. Isn't prophecy the domain of the righteous, of the people that are upstanding, the people that are the greatest of the human species? Why is a sinner, a Gentile like Bilaam, someone like that, why is he given this tremendous power, this ability to communicate with God, this ability to ostensibly have blessing and curses? So she tells us that the reason why Bilaam was given prophecy is so that there should not be an excuse for the nations in the future. The nations will say, oh, the Jewish people are given all this reward and we're suffering, but it's not fair. They had someone like Moses and Moses made sure that they were behaving in the proper way. Had we had prophets equal or greater to Moses, we too would have been morally upstanding. And therefore, the non-Jews had to have a character as great, as talented as Moses, or else it would not be fear. And therefore, they were given Bilaam, who was someone who equaled or exceeded Moses in prophecy. And what happened? We see that their prophet not only did not improve their standing, the prophet actually caused terrible sins, not only for the Jewish people, as we'll see later in the Parsha, but also for the non-Jews. And therefore, we see it didn't really work out as planned. That's the idea that we find in Rashi. The, the Gentiles had to have someone, they had to have a prophet, and they got Bilaam, someone who had the goods, had the ability to be greater than Moses, but ended up being terribly immoral. And the obvious question on this idea is, if you have to give prophecy to the non-Jews, or else they have an excuse, shouldn't you give it to someone who's more decent, someone who's more moral? Why are you giving it to someone as corrupt as morally suspect as Bilaam? And the answer perhaps is that Bilaam is someone is given who is given prophecy because otherwise there's an excuse. He didn't acquire it. He didn't earn it. It was gifted to him. And we see an idea here that unearned greatness is not transformational. If you don't earn the stature that you attain – it's actually going to be harmful rather than helpful for you. So, for example, on a national scale, the Jewish people experience the Sinai revelation, a prophecy on a national scale, something that hitherto and thenceforth has not happened, they achieved the peak of human experience. Did they earn it? Was it gifted? Was it something that they acquired or was it something that was foisted upon them, that was given to them? 
they did not acquire their greatness. It was gifted to them. So what happened immediately following that, they have the capacity to sin, of course, with the golden calf. And we see an idea. What you struggle to attain, what you sweat and you earn, that purifies you, that refines you. But when you have something which is given to you, not only does it not refine you, it is likely to corrupt you yet further. Bilaam was given this stature, this prophecy as a gift, and it corrupted him rather than refining him. That's one idea that we see over here. Alternatively, there is a general principle that any greatness that someone has necessarily leads to haughtiness unless you choose to embrace humility. And we have a concept in, in Jewish philosophy that the greater stature someone unlocks, someone obtains, the commensurate step in humility is necessary. So, for example, when we pray in the Shemona Esra, in the Amidah prayer, you're supposed to bow down, you're supposed to kneel, so to speak, before God four times. If you have a high priest, of course, someone who achieves a very high stature amongst the Jewish people, the law states that he has to bow not just four times, but 19 times, one for each blessing. What about the king? The king who has achieved the pinnacle, the highest office, the greatest stature amongst the nation, the law states that he has to pray the entire prayer while bowing. Every stage that we unlock in our greatness must necessarily be accompanied by a parallel, a sister step in humility. Abraham had that. Abraham was someone that despite the fact that God gave him tremendous prophecy and tremendous love and closeness and promises and a great legacy, what did Abraham say? Anochi, afar, va'efer, I am but dust and ashes. He understood how to utilize the prophecy and not allow it to corrupt him. He earned it. Bilaam, on the other hand, it was gifted to him and he did not take those steps to ensure that each stage of greatness is accompanied by a commensurate or parallel stage in humility and therefore he became the most arrogant and the most haughty. Now it is interesting that Abraham, we're told about Abraham, I will bless those who bless you and those who curse you, I will curse. Abraham had the ability to do blessings and curses. And again, we see another parallel here between Abraham and Bilaam. Bilaam ostensibly, at least in the eyes of Balak, he is someone who people thought that he had the power to bless and to curse as well. Now, the Talmud tells us that the truth is that Bilaam only had one power. His power was that he was able to pinpoint the precise millisecond, the moment that God is, so to speak, angry and most susceptible, most agreeable to cursing, but he really did not have the ability to bless. But Balak, the king of of Moab, he thought that Bilaam had the ability to bless, but the truth was that Bilaam did not have the ability to bless. So how'd that work? How does Balak come under the impression that Bilaam knew how to bless when the truth was that he only knew how to curse? So the commentaries tell us something really interesting. They say that Bilaam had the vision of a prophet. He was able to, so to speak, see the future. But he wasn't able to manipulate the future only for the negative, not for the positive. So he saw in the future that Balak, 
is going to be appointed as king of Moab. So he went over to Balak and he said, I want to give you a blessing. I'm going to bless you that you will be appointed king. And sure enough, subsequently, Balak is appointed king. And Balak attributed that to the blessing of Bilam. But the truth is, is that Bilam just foresaw it and made believe that he caused it, that he effectuated it only to be able to garner the, the honor and the, the residual benefits of Balak thinking that Bilam really caused the blessing and didn't just try to seize the rewards of causing that. But the truth was that his only ability lied in his, in his capacity to curse, but not to bless. Okay, so Balak sent this message to Bilam. Please curse this Jewish people and you'll help me with my very pressing problem. So the elders of Moab, the elders of Midian, they, they come and they approach Bilam and they make the request. And he says, I have to think about it overnight. I have to see what God is going to tell me. Rashi tells us that Bilam had prophecy, yes, but it was only conveyed to him at night. God only went to him at night. God, so to speak, snuck away to go visit him, but it was never done during the day. And Rashi adds that the prophecy of Bilam was only at night, similar to Laban. In chapter 31 of Genesis, God came to Laban, the father-in-law of Jacob, in a dream at night. And it's interesting that Rashi makes this connection between Bilam and Laban, because the Talmud tells us that Bilam was actually the son of Laban. And according to at least one opinion in the Midrash, Bilam is Laban. Of course, this would make him very old. But what it means is that there's some sort of spiritual connection between Bilam and Laban. Just like Laban tried to uproot everything, Bilam is going to follow in his footsteps, try to uproot everything amongst the Jewish people. Now, Bilam is asking the elders of Midian and Moab to stay overnight. Will God allow me to go with you? And Rashi explains that what does that mean? Will God allow me to go with you? Maybe God will only allow me to go with you if there's officers that are of greater stature than you. Maybe God will say, no, no, no. These people who have come to ask for you to come curse the Jewish people, they're not respectable enough, they're not honorable enough, and therefore you can't go with them, you have to go with someone who's even more honorable. Again, we see his pride and his hubris and his haughtiness and his arrogance. So God came to Bilam and asked him, who are these men with you? A very interesting question. God is testing Bilam. He's asking the question, who are these men? Of course, God knows everything, and the notion of God asking Bilam a question, when God certainly knows the answer, is is unusual. So Bilam responded, Balak, the son of Tzipor, the king of Moab, sent to me. So it's interesting a dialogue over here between God. God asks Bilam, who are these men? And Bilam responds, well, the king of Moab, Balak, the son of Tzipor, they sent to me. So the commentaries and the Midrash and our sages tell us a very interesting idea. There is a similar question that is asked of Cain in the beginning of Genesis. Cain, of course, is asked, where is your brother? God asked that question. Now, God, of course, knows the answer. And the obvious answer that Cain should have told God is, well, you don't need my help. You know the answer better than I do. Similarly, Bilaam should have said the same thing. 
Bilam should have said, you don't need to know that. You know the, you don't need my help in figuring out and deciphering the situation. You know exactly who these people are better than I do. So the Midrash tells us that there's three people that God inspected them, God tested them, and he found them to be a pot of urine. That's the words of the Midrash. And they are Cain, Bilam, and Chistia, the king of Judah. So it's interesting here that we see again that Bilam is making a big blunder by answering the question improperly. He should have said to God, you know very well you don't need my help in this matter. But what does he respond? He responds, Balak, son of Tipper, king of Moab, sent to me. And again, Rashi tells us, and this is again the study of the Parsha. Part of the Parsha is to study exactly how corrupt someone could get and what not to do. And here we see more arrogance. The king of Moab, God, says Bilam, you don't think I'm so special, but you know who does think I'm special? The king of Moab. They're interested in what I have to say, even though you're not. And continues, Bilam, behold, the people coming out of, the, out of Egypt that cover the surface of the earth, now go and curse it for me. Perhaps I will be able to make war against them and drive it away. So what does God say to Bilam? No, you can't go with them. You can't curse the people. The people is blessed. And Bilam wakes up in the morning and tells the officers of Balak, go, Hashem has refused to give me permission to go with you. I have to go with someone who's more important. That's the insinuation. I need more people that are more important. So they return to Balak and they say, Bilam does not want to come with us. So he sends higher ranking officers to go try to cajole and convince Bilam to come curse the Jewish people. They return to Bilam. They say, I'll honor you greatly. I'll give you tremendous wealth. And Bilam responds, even if you give me your whole house full of silver and gold, I cannot transgress the word of Hashem, my God, to do anything, to do anything small or great. And Rashi tells us again that this shows his unbridled avarice, his unsatiated, his rapacious desire that, yes, Balak really should Give me a house full of gold and silver. I really am deserving of all that wealth and all that honor. Again, he tells the messengers, let me wait overnight. Let me speak to God. Whatever God says to to do, I will do. And again, there's a conversation. God arrives to the prophecy with Bilaam at night. And he says to them, if the men came to summon you, arise and go with them, provided that the thing that I shall speak to you, you shall do. Our sages tell us, that when someone is really deeply desirous of pursuing a certain path, the Almighty will facilitate that, the Almighty will enable that. If someone wants to become righteous, if someone wants to purify themselves, then God will facilitate that. If someone wants to become wicked, if someone wants to defile themselves, then God will facilitate that too. Bilaam is sincerely desirous of joining Balak and trying to curse the Jewish people. And God says, you know what? If that's what you want, I'm going to allow that. I'm going to enable that. I'm going to allow you to go. And I think this does provide us with a little bit of a scary idea. You know, sometimes if things are going swimmingly and it seems like we're having tremendous success in whatever we choose, we may be deluded into thinking that we're doing what's right. Because after all, God is enabling, God's facilitating me to do this. It must mean that the Almighty is happy with what I'm doing. I'm doing the right thing. 
But here we see that someone like Bilaam was doing the wrong thing. But because he's so deeply desirous of it, God allows it. And he may be under the impression that he's doing the right thing. But the truth is he's doing the wrong thing. I think it's a valuable lesson for us that we have to do what the Torah wants of us. We have to do what the Almighty wants of us. And just because we experience divine assistance, so to speak, or divine enabling of success in the path that we choose, that does not necessarily mean that we're doing the right thing. Okay, so Bilaam arose in the morning, and he saddled his female donkey, and he went with the officers of Moab. So if you read that verse quickly, you might not notice that there's something really unusual here. Verse 21, Bilaam arose in the morning and saddled his female donkey and went with the officers of Moab. The Torah, of course, does not give us anything that's not necessary. There's no extra fat. There's no information that we're inundated with unnecessarily. And Rashi right away tells us a very deep idea. In the seminal trip of Abraham's life, where he travels with Isaac and two other lads to bring him up as a sacrifice on Mount Moriah in Jerusalem, it says the exact same words. Abraham arose in the morning and he saddled his donkey. And this shows us two things. Number one, that there was excitement to wake up in the morning. Number two, that there was commitment to the mission that Abraham saddled his own donkey. Abraham had hundreds of servants. He had a huge household. And of course, it's not appropriate, you would think, for someone like Abraham to saddle his own donkey. And similarly, Bilaam is really rich. And what does he do? He wakes up in the morning. And he himself saddled his female donkey. And the Talmud tells us that this shows us that love corrupts the correct order and hate also corrupts the correct order. Abraham was motivated by love, love of God, to commit this mitzvah of sacrificing Isaac. And he was so excited, he woke up early and he harnessed his donkey himself. And of course, that's corrupting the order. Abraham should have outsourced that to someone else. But he was so enraptured, so in love with God, he did it himself. Similarly, but on the exact opposite side, Bilaam should have allowed someone else to saddle his donkey, but he was so consumed and so motivated by hatred that that too corrupted the natural or the correct order, and he saddled his own donkey. And Rashi tells us that it's almost as if Abraham is the prophylactic against Bilaam. You think that your dedication to curse the Jewish people will be successful? You should realize, our sages tell us, that Abraham preceded you he woke up early, he saddled his, his own donkey, and his commitment to do the will of God will be able to shield the Jewish people from allowing your curses to injure and impact them negatively. So Bilaam is traveling with his she-donkey. Now, the, the gender of the donkey comes into importance a little bit later on, and we find out from our sages, and quoted by the commentaries here on the Parsha, that Bilaam's relationship with his donkey was more than just a one of transportation. He, in fact, was someone who was romantically involved with his donkey. But he's traveling, and God's wrath flares up against him, and an angel of God 
stood on the road to impede him. This is a very interesting, very unusual episode here in the story that Bilam is traveling. He's traveling with the elders of the Moabites. And we're also told that he's riding his she-donkey and he has two young men with him. And again, this hints at the story of Abraham. Abraham also, the exact same words appear in Genesis where Abraham is traveling with two young lads to go bring Isaac as a sacrifice. And here, Bilam is traveling with two young lads to go bring a curse upon the Jewish people. Abraham's traveling on a donkey. Bilam is also traveling on a female donkey, and that relationship is going to be fleshed out a little bit more later on. But there's an angel standing on the road to impede Bilam. Rashi tells us that this is an angel of mercy to prevent him from sinning so that he should not sin and he should not be destroyed. Even after the Almighty acquiesced to allow Bilam to choose his own path, to choose the path of trying to curse the Jewish people, which will not end up well for Bilam, still he provided the possibility of Bilam being extricated from this sin. This shows us that the mercy of God extends even after people have made the decision to commit a sin, the mercy of God is still present. So the angel is stopping or standing in the road to stop this trip and the donkey sees the angel and the angel has a sword in his hand. So the donkey turns away from the road and goes into the field. And Bilam, who does not see the angel yet, he has this recalcitrant donkey and tries to hit it to go back on the road. And the angel stands in the path in the vineyards with a fence on one side and a fence on the other side. And the angel appears to the donkey and the donkey is freaking out and it begins to press against the wall and it presses Bilam's leg against the wall and he continues to hit it. And finally, the angel went further and stood in a very narrow place. There's no room to go right nor left. And the donkey saw the angel of of God. Again, it's invisible to Bilam. And he begins to crouch beneath Bilam. And Bilam continues with his anger to strike the donkey with his stick. Very unusual description over here. And Rashi tells us, quoting the Midrash, that the three different impediments where he goes off the road and then there's a fence on one side and a fence on the other side and then there's no place to go, that is emblematic. That is symbolizing Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. How so? Abraham, many nations emerged from him. And you also have, of course, Ishmael and Esav. And that is almost like an expansive way that the donkey, so to speak, could evade the angel and to go into the field. And then you have Isaac. Isaac has only two sons, and that is equivalent to almost the fence on one side and fence on the other side. And there's still a little bit of wiggle room because on one side there's Jacob, who of course is righteous. On the other side there is Esau, who of course is wicked. And finally, the angel stands on a place that's so narrow, there's no wiggle room at all. That is a reference to Jacob, Jacob whose entire bed was righteous. Jacob, who all of his children were tzaddikim, were righteous. There was no other nation that emerged from them. That is the 
kind of the symbolism that is undergirding this third encounter where Bilma has absolutely no room to maneuver. He cannot move, not right, not left. There's no way to go. He has been defeated. Checkmate. And he continues to hit his donkey. And then something even more unusual happens. Hashem opened the mouth of the donkey. And it said to Bilam. So we have a talking donkey in our parsha. What have I done to you that you struck me these three times? And Bilam responds, because you mocked me. If there was a sword in my hand, I would have killed you. And the donkey responds back to Bilam. A whole unusual dialogue here. I'm your she-donkey. You have ridden upon me your whole life until this day. Did I ever do this to you? And he responded, and he said, no. And finally, Hashem uncovered Bilam's eyes, and he saw the angel of God standing on the road with a sword drawn, and he bowed, he prostrated himself to the floor, and now he pivots to having a conversation with the angel. So again, this is a very, very unusual episode here. We have the donkey that begins to speak to Bilam. So, of course, there is voluminous commentaries on, on this whole episode, and we're only scratching the surface. But maybe an idea that we could share is that a donkey in Jewish literature, in Jewish philosophy, it represents physicality. And the Hebrew word for physicality and materialism is the same root or the same Hebraic root as the word of donkey. Physicality is chomer, and a donkey is chamor. And we're told in Jewish literature that Moses and Abraham and in the future Messiah are going to be riding on top of the donkey. And of course, the Midrash goes on to tell us that the same donkey that Abraham rode to Mount Moriah to bring Isaac as a sacrifice is the exact same donkey that Moses rode to Egypt to go save the Jewish people and is the same donkey that Messiah will ride in the future to go save the Jewish people and to usher in the third commonwealth and the third temple. A very unusual idea. But the meaning behind it, or the basic meaning behind that, is that the donkey represents physicality. When someone rides the donkey, they have the reins, they have the control, and that symbolizes that there is a certain dominance of the soul, so to speak. The soul of Abraham, of Moses, of Messiah, is in total control of their own physicality. And that enables them to have the ability to influence, the ability to guide the Jewish people to their destiny. Bilam, he's someone who's also riding the donkey. But his relationship is a little bit more intimate with the donkey. He does have the ability, so to speak, to ride on it, but due to his decisions, the donkey becomes smarter than him. He is not on top of the donkey. The donkey is almost on top of him. It asserts control over him. It sees the angel. He doesn't. It communicates with him. We're told, of course, that he copulates with the donkey as well. He's not someone who, even though he had the ability to be like Moses, to ride on the donkey exclusively, he's someone that has descended, that has lowered himself to be on par even below that donkey. So that's a basic idea that we see over here. The Ramban, he tells us that the reason why there was this miracle, the speaking donkey, is to show Bilam that the Almighty determines who speaks and what they say. And so to Bilam, his speech, his speech that he's setting out to go deliver now is going to be determined by God as well. 
Now, it is interesting that the verse tells us that when Bilaam sees the angel, God uncovered Bilaam's eyes and he saw the angel. And I think this shows us the architecture of prophecy. It's almost as if the angel is present, Bilaam is just totally unaware of its existence. His eyes were covered. And then you remove the blockades, you uncover his eyes, and right away he sees what was there all along. Similarly, we believe that prophecy, the ability to have communication with God, is present. The blockades are on our eyes, really on our eyes and our hearts, our souls. It's covered, but if you scrape away the blockages that impede our greatness, we will be restored to the state that really is the more natural state, the communication with God, the living like an angel, seeing the angel, so to speak, to, to be elevated to the higher level. It's not to achieve, to unlock something that was previously unobtainable. It's to remove the impediments. And the fact that the angel is holding the sword, or the commentaries tell us that this is foreshadowing that Bilaam will be killed with a sword very soon. So the angel tells Bilaam, why did you strike your female donkey three times? I went to impede it. You hastened on the road to oppose me. The donkey saw me, turned away. Had it not turned away from me, I would have now even have you killed and let it live. This is a very interesting first statement from the angel to Bilaam. Now, Rashi tells us something very fascinating. I think a very very deep idea that we see several places throughout the Torah. The angel tells Bilaam, I would have killed you and let it live. But ultimately, Bilaam lived and the donkey died. So what the angel is saying, I should have killed you and let it live, but in effect, I'm going to do the opposite. I'm going to let you live and I'm going to kill it. And the reason why is because Bilaam was one-upped by his donkey. He wasn't able to respond to its rebuke. And therefore, to prevent Bilaam from being ashamed, the Almighty killed the donkey. It's a very powerful idea. Even someone as sinful, as egregious as Bilaam, when the Torah punishes him, it does not punish him more than necessary. Yes, he needs to get punished. Yes, he's going to get executed. But the fact that there's a donkey that's walking around, the donkey that silenced Bilaam, that is too much, and therefore that donkey has to be killed. Very powerful idea that even when someone is a sinner and is worthy, deserving of punishment, the Torah does not punish more than is absolutely necessary. So the angel continues the conversation with Bilaam. I have sinned. Should I go back? No. The angel says, no, go there. Go with the officers, but do exactly as I tell you. So finally, Balak hears that Bilaam is arriving. He goes to meet him and uh, he says to him, why, why didn't you come earlier? And Bilaam says, well, I'm here now. And they begin their pursuit of cursing the Jewish people. And they slaughter sacrifices and they go to the mountaintop and they see the edge of the people. This is another idea here. We said that Bilaam is characterized as someone who has an evil eye. And here we see he has to see the people. 
Abraham was someone who always saw the good in people. Abraham saw the travels and tried to do kindness with them. And here we see, and the Rabbana elaborates on this idea, that Bilaam wants to see them and that will fuel his hatred for the Jewish people and enable him to, to curse them. That's the evil eye of Bilaam. It's the opposite of Abraham. Abraham sees someone says, how can I help them? Bilaam sees someone and says, how can I exploit them? How can I curse them? And of course, another major difference between Abraham and Bilaam is that Bilaam is going to begin his process now in chapter 23 to try to pray to destroy a nation that's righteous. And of course, Abraham, he was the one who prayed, but not to destroy the righteous, the exact opposite, to save, to spare the wicked of Sodom and Gomorrah. So chapter 23 begins, Bilaam's at the Balak, build for me seven altars and seven bulls and seven rams. In order to facilitate his curse, he needs to have seven altars. Why does he need to have seven altars? So there's a few different explanations given by the commentaries. For one, we're told that there are seven righteous builders of altars, and therefore, in order to counteract them, to thwart them, you have to have seven altars to counteract them. Adam, Abel, Noah, Abram, Isaac, and Jacob, and Moses, that's seven righteous people that built altars, and therefore we have to have seven altars to counteract them. Alternatively, there were seven altars built by Abram, Isaac, and Jacob. Abraham built four, Isaac built one, and Jacob built two. So the seven altars built by Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, by the founders of the Jewish people, and if you want to uproot the Jewish people, you have to uproot them from their roots, from their foundations, and the foundations, of course, are Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and therefore you have to attack them thusly. So Balak does as Bilaam has requested. There's seven altars. Each altar, a sacrifice of a bull and a ram is offered. And Bilaam tells Balak, okay, now you go stand by the, by the, by the sacrifice and I'm going to go talk to God and whatever God says, tells me to say, I'm going to say. And the Talmud tells us that really this was a miracle because Bilaam knew the exact moment that God was susceptible to cursing, i.e. to cursing the Jewish people. And for those days, God temporarily ceased having that moment of anger, the moment of agreeableness to cursing, and therefore Bilaam did not find an opening. Of course, this is a very advanced idea. What does it mean that God for a moment, for a second, for a millisecond is, is capable of being urged to curse? It's a very interesting theological idea. But that's the basic idea that our, that our sages tell us in the Talmud. And God tells Bilaam, okay, I have a message for you. Go say this message. And this begins the blessings of Bilaam. He's going to try to curse them. And God's going to turn it on its head and force him to bless the people in the exact way that he wanted to curse them. He wanted to curse them in, in specific ways. And we'll see them not by the curses, but by the opposite. There are blessings that were the exact opposite of the curses that were intended. And it's interesting that a lot of these blessings became part of of literature, part of our liturgy. In fact, in the morning, we say some prayers that come from Bilaam because Bilaam, he epitomized the nation. He was able to describe and identify the characteristics of our nation for the positive. In fact, the Talmud even says that there was a decision, or at least there was a discussion, whether to include Bilaam's blessings in the daily Shema, ultimately, because we didn't want to encumber 
the people, it was not included, but it could have been. It was that good. So he begins his first blessing from Aram, Bala, king of Moab, led me to the mountains of the east, and they're, they're very poetic and very beautiful. Balak wants me to curse the Jewish people. How can I curse them? God is not cursed. How can I anger? God is not angry. Again, that's the idea that God did not get angry during these days. From its origins, I see it rock-like. And from the hills do I see it. Behold, is a nation that will dwell in solitude and not be reckoned among the nations. It actually tells us what does it mean that Bilaam is describing its origins. He's talking about Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I want to uproot them, but their origins are very strong. A nation that will dwell in solitude. And that, of course, has been true throughout our history, that we're different, we're isolated, we're in solitude, we're not reckoned amongst the nations, and that could be one way or the other. If we try to assimilate, if we try to acculturate, if we try to be any nation like the nations, that necessarily will awaken what we call anti-Semitism, which, according to Jewish philosophy, is the irrational hatred that God implanted to ensure that this remains true, that we're a nation that will dwell in solitude. We're a nation that will not be taken off chart, off our path of bringing the world to its completion, of completing the mission of Abraham, who has counted the dust of Jacob or numbered a quarter of Israel. May my soul die the death of the upright and may my end be like this. Bilaam is so consumed with all the Jewish people, he's hoping to die the death of the righteous. And of course, this does not sound like what Balak had signed up for. He says, I don't get it. I called you to curse them and now you brought a blessing to them. So Bilaam responds, well, this is what I told you. Whatever God tells me to say, I'm going to have to say. So instead, they make a decision to change locations. We're going to go to a different location. We'll see a different part of the nation. Maybe that will allow us to find an opening to go curse the Jewish people. Now, it's interesting. When Abraham prayed, and he was also rebuffed, his prayer to save the people of Simon and Gomorrah was unsuccessful. It's clear if you compare the verses that Abraham returned to the same place. And here, Bilaam is unsuccessful and he goes to a different place. And what that tells us is that Abraham attributed his failed prayer to the merits, whereas Bilaam attributed it to the place. There was all kinds of circumstances. It's the place, it's the location, maybe a different angle, and maybe then it'll be war. Maybe then it'll, it will work. Maybe then my cursing will be effective. He blames the circumstances, whereas Abraham blames himself. And again, they go to a different location. Again, they bring sacrifices. Again, Bilaam gives another blessing and he tells him, God is not a man that he should be deceitful, nor a son of man that he should relent. Would he say not do or speak and not confirm? You want to kill the Jewish people. You want to destroy the Jewish people. But he promised that he's going to give them the land of the seven nations. He's going to give them the land of Canaan. How could you possibly even conceive to try to kill them in the wilderness? Behold, to bless I have received, he has blessed, and I shall not contradict it. God wants me to bless. I, I can't do anything about it. There's no iniquity in Jacob. There's no perversity in Israel. Hashem, his God, is with him, and the friendship of the king is in him. Even when the Jewish people do sin, it does not register or certainly does not diminish their stature that we have with God. It is God who brought them out of the land of Egypt according to the power of his loftiness, 
There is no divination in Jacob. There's no sorcery in Israel. They have a direct connection to God, the Jewish people. They have real prophets. Even if they don't have real prophets, they have the Urim and the Tumim. They have a direct link to God via the prophets, and therefore they don't need to resort to gurus, to sorcerers, and to necromancers. Behold, the people will rise like a lion cub, raise itself like a lion. It will not lie down until it consumes its prey and drinks the blood of the slain. Again, a monumental blessing. And of course, Balak is further disappointed. And they, of course, continue to go to a different place, a third place. Maybe then they will be successful in cursing and attacking the Jewish people. So chapter 24 begins again with a third blessing that is foisted upon Bilaam by God. Bilaam raised his eyes and saw Israel dwelling according to its tribes. Our sages tell us what that means is that each opening of the tent was facing away from a different opening. Everyone was living modestly. That's one of the hallmarks of our nation. It's our path to salvation. The reason why we survived, one of the reasons why we survived the curses of Bilaam was because of this. The Spirit of God was upon him. He began, again, with a very poetic, a very beautiful, a very stirring blessing. This is the words of Bilaam, the man with the open eye. So he just tell us that he was blind in one eye. How goodly are your tents, O Jacob, your dwelling places, O Israel, stretching out like brooks, like gardens by the river, like aloes planted by Hashem, like cedars by water. Again, very beautiful, very poetic. Very stirring water shall flow from as well. And by the way, the commentaries, of course, tell us what, what it all means, what the deeper insight behind it. And his seed shall be by abundant waters. His king shall be exalted over our God and his kingdom shall be upraised. And of course, it continues again and again. Balak is beside himself. He claps his hands together. I didn't summon you here to bless them. I, I brought you here to curse them and now leave. You wanted honor. You're not going to get any honor. It's been withheld from you. And again, Billam responded, there's nothing I could do. I told you ahead of time that I am totally beholden to the will of God. Whatever he tells me to say, I must say. And then Billam gives a fourth prophecy, a fourth blessing, which is also hinting at his advice. Rashi tells us, that when it says in verse 14, and now behold, I go to my people, come, I shall advise you what this people will do to your people in the end of days. It's also hinting at the fact that Bilaam gave advice to Balak as to how to attack the Jewish people, not via cursing, but via trying to seduce their men to sin. I know, says Bilaam, that the God of these people hates immodesty, hates promiscuity, and therefore if you convince the daughters of Moab to avail themselves to the men of the Jewish people, then you will find a way to attack them. And he continues with his fourth prophecy, the words of the one who hears the sayings of God and knows the knowledge of the Supreme One. Again, he's touting his own greatness. Who sees the vision of, of Shakai while fallen and with uncovered eyes. I shall see him, but not now. I shall look at him, but he is not near. A star has issued from Jacob, and a scepter bearer has risen from Israel. This is a reference to David, to Solomon, to Messiah. 
and he shall pierce the nobles of Moab and undermine all the children of Seth. And the Ramban, he encapsulates the blessings and the prophecies of Bilam. The first prophecy was a reference to the past, to the great and holy patriarchs of the Jewish people. The second prophecy was on the present. The third was on the future, the days of David and, and Solomon. And the fourth and final blessing, the fourth and final prophecy was in the yet-to-come future, the future where the destiny of Abraham is fulfilled. So Bilaam gets up, he goes back to his place, and Balak also returns to his place. That's the end of chapter 24, and chapter 25 begins with a fulfillment of Bilaam's plot. Like we said, that he gave them the suggestion to commit the daughters of Moab into harlotry and to use that as a means to attack the Jewish people. Israel settled in Shittim and the people began to commit harlotry with the daughters of Moab. They invited people to the feast of their gods. The people ate and prostrated themselves to their gods. Israel became attached to Baal Peor, which is the, the idol, and the wrath of Hashem flared up against the Jewish people. Now, our sages tell us, what does it mean that the idol is called Baal Peor? What it means is, is that the means of servicing it, the means of worshiping it was by defecating in front of it. That was the way that they did this idolatry. And the meaning behind that is that this idolatry represented nihilism. It represented the concept that nothing matters. We're all eventually like refuse, like waste. We have no life, no value, no continuity. It's all ending up as compost. We're just going to decompose. We're just like the the defecant that we have no value. That's the idea behind this idolatry. And therefore, of course, if you have no life, if you have no eternity, if you have no soul, then everything that you do should be just to maximize your own personal and carnal pleasure in this world. And of course, we believe that the exact opposite is true. Everything has value. Everything has continuity. And by the way, even the fertilizer is used from the refuse, from the waste that is produced. Nothing is for naught. And what do the people do? What do the Moabite women do? They give them to eat. It's interesting. They give them to eat and they prostrate themselves. And an interesting idea. We know that the Jewish people at the time were still eating manna. Manna does not produce anything that must be defecated. And therefore, the only way to get the Jewish people to do this form of idolatry was if they ate regular food with the Moabites and that made this form of idolatry possible. So the nation became attached to Baal Peor and God's anger flared against them and a plague began killing members of the Jewish people. And Moses tries to intervene. Go try to prevent this plague from continuing by executing all the people that were attached to Baal Peor. And amidst this entire plague, something very unusual happens. And the leader of the tribe of Shimon, he seizes a Moabite princess and he brings her to Moses. Behold, a man of the children of Israel came and brought a midnight woman near to his brothers in the sight of Moses and in the sight of the entire assembly 
of the children of Israel, and they were weeping at the entrance of the tent of meeting. Zimri, the name of this head of the tribe, he grabs this Moabite woman and he comes to Moses and asks, is this woman allowed or is she not allowed? And of course he says, she's not allowed. And he says to them, okay, well, what difference exists between this woman, this Moabite princess, and the Midianite woman, the daughter of Jethro, that you married? And the answer, of course, is, is that Moses married her before Sinai. This is already after Sinai. But regardless, this shows the state of the nation after they capitulated to the Moabite women and their seductions. And this man, Zimri, he begins in a very public fashion to copulate with this Moabite princess. And the nation is crying, and there's various reasons given here why they were crying. One of the reasons is, is that no one knew what to do. And amidst this terrible state, Pinchas, the son of Lazar, the son of Aaron, the Kohen, this is the grandson of Aaron, he saw what happened. And he remembered the law that when someone is behaving in such a fashion, a very public way, they are vulnerable to being extrajudicially executed. He stood up from among the assembly. He took a spear in his hand and he followed the Israelite man into the plant, into the tent and he pierced them both. He made a skewer out of Zimri and Cosby. These were the people that were doing the sin and the plague was halted. But 24,000 people died in that plague. It's a very unusual way to end the parsha. The zealotry of Pinchas, the grandson of Aaron. The reason why he's attributed to Aaron is because Aaron, of course, was the paragon of love, of fellow man, of kindness, of bringing them close to Torah. And yet, someone like Pinchas is justifiably the descendant of, of Aaron because he was the one who, notwithstanding his love of his fellow man, was motivated by zealotry of his love of God to stop this madness and to execute both Zimri, the Jew, the head of the tribe of Shimon, and Cosby, the Moabite princess, and to go kill them in order to stave off or to stop the plague and to restore order and restore the will of God. And of course, Netsui's Parsha continues with this narrative. The Parsha is called Pinchas, named, of course, after Pinchas, and the ramifications of his act of martyrdom. Thank you so much for listening. My name is Rabbi Yaakov Walby from Torch in Houston, Texas. The email address is rabbiwalby at gmail.com. I look forward to speaking to you next week.